0: Welcome back to another episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael Cravens and I am your host. Today we have got an interesting conversation coming at you between Jesse DeBell of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, Michael Dax of Wildlands Network, and myself. Uh, we are going to be talking about there there's a couple different camps in the conservationist environmentalist arena um and they can be somewhat divided up into consumptive and non-consumptive user groups and they tend to disagree when it comes down to pulling the trigger and and you know bringing an animal home and putting it in your freezer but the important part is they agree on the the bulk of everything else when it comes to you know, healthy habitats, um, access to public lands, you know, healthy and robust wildlife populations. We all want that stuff, but we tend to struggle coming together and working on that. You know, we, we tend to only focus and bicker about that, that one, 2%. Um, so that's, that's what this conversation is about, how to bring those groups together, um, ignore our differences and work together on the, the stuff that matters and the stuff that we agree on. So look forward to that. And beforehand, I have got some updates from some of our great Arizona sporting conservation groups. So first off, we've got from the Arizona Mule Deer Organization. They are holding an event on March 26th called Restore the Gates of Moki 8. It's hosted by Dan Bradford of Arizona Water Game Catchments. They're gonna be repairing and reinforcing some existing pipe rail fencing that has been badly damaged. Also, the drinker trough needs a bit of infill where animals have have worn away the uh, supporting soil. So good opportunity to get out there, uh, get your hands dirty doing some good work for wildlife. Next up, we have the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society. They are Holding a fundraiser on March 12th. The event is currently sold out, but people can still participate by buying raffle tickets. Uh, go to the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society.org, or that's ADBSS.org for details. Next, we got a few items from Valley of the Sun Quail Forever. They are hosting a rattlesnake avoidance training with Guy. Molly Cone on Saturday, April 9th, from seven thirty AM to ten AM. All dogs are well welcome, that's hunting and non hunting dogs. Uh and this is important for all dogs if you live live in the desert southwest. I, I've done this training with Guy myself, with my pup Edward, um, and uh it's it's vitally important. Not only can it save you a, a great deal of money in vet bills, but it can also save the life of your dog. I like to tell folks that, you know, Rattlesnakes are non-aggressive animal, but they're defensive, and, and when a dog's got his nose shoved into a rattlesnake's face, it's going to bite to defend itself, and, and that can have devastating consequences. So this event's going to be held in the northwest Phoenix Valley near Surprise, and you can get uh, Contact Valley to the Sun Quail Forever for a map to this location. The training cost is $100 for first-timers and $50 for a recheck. Let's see, Valley of the Sun Quail Forever is also holding a registered sporting clays shoot. Uh, This is on Saturday, April 16th at Picacho Clay Course. Uh, Starts at 9 a.m. It costs $80 per person. This includes lunch and entry for a honey baked ham. All the money raised stays in Arizona. Uh, Go to VOTSQF.com to get signed up. Let's see, they've also, they are uh, raffling off a beautiful inside 28 gauge shotgun. It's 28 inch side by side, chrome line barrels. It comes with three interchangeable chokes, case hardened receiver, double trigger mechanism, extractor style. Um, as new in box, it appears to be on fire. Uh, retail value of $2,200, get your tickets at value of Click on shotgun, shotgun raffle on the menu. It's $100 per ticket, and only 50 raffle tickets are available. Again, all of these funds stay in Arizona to help offset chapter costs, uh, water projects, recreational access, biologists working with ranchers, riparian habitat stewardship, group quail hunts and camps and youth camps. So all that money is going to a really good place. All right, what else have we got here? The Arizona backcountry hunters and anglers are raffling off some amazing Yeti gear to get you set to beat the summer heat um, and make sure you're ready for fishing and hunting all year. We have six total items up for grabs, two Yeti Ramblers, uh, those are the 24 coolers, and four Yeti Rambler buckets. I use these buckets for carrying my dove decoys in the field and having a nice place to sit when I'm out there. Plus with every $50 spent, you get an entry into a bonus raffle for a Stone Glacier Evo 4065 backpack that's valued at over $600. So get your tickets while the getting's good. You don't have to be a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers to participate, but it'd sure be cool if you were. Finally, us, the Arizona Wildlife Federation, we held our fourth annual camo at the capitol event this past february 3rd that was a thursday let's see uh, we we had the vast majority of, of arizona's great sporting conservation organizations show up for this event um, they came together as a unified advocacy voice for the conservation of our wildlife public lands and access during this event, we met with legislators. We discussed issues and current bills. We served them a delicious wild lunch that included coosdeer deer tacos from Arizona Backcountry Hunters and anglers, chili verde black bear from the dialed in hunter, that's Josh Kushner, uh, dove poppers from us here at Arizona Wildlife Federation. And probably the most popular offering was some amazing mountain lion tacos uh, that the Desert Bighorn Sheep Society brought out. So I'd like to thank all of our friends and affiliates that showed up to this very important event. And of course, a special thanks to these folks that went the extra mile by opening up their freezers and sharing some of that hard earned meat. So yeah, if you didn't make it out this year, you definitely wanna make it a point to get out next year. This is a great event. It's extremely important, it shows us unified together standing up for, for, again, our wildlife, our our public lands and our access to them. So come on out next year. Um, It's it's worth it. It's a great time and a lot of good food. So that's it for our announcements. Uh, Stick around and for this interesting conversation between Michael and Jesse and I, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, here we go. I am sitting here with uh, Jesse Dubell and Michael Dax. I'm gonna let you gentlemen introduce yourselves, if you don't mind. Jesse, you want to take the stage? Sure, I'll go ahead. Michael,
1: um, very good to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate everything the Arizona Wildlife Federation continues to do to to promote conservation and advance conservation priorities in Arizona and across the Southwest. Uh, my name is Jesse Dubell. I'm the executive director of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, so I have the great fortune of work, working very closely with the Arizona Wildlife Federation, with you, Michael Cravens, and I also am very privileged to have the ability to work with Wildlands Network, and uh, from Wildlands Network, we have my good friend, Michael Dax. so Michael, you want to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, thanks, Jesse, and uh, thanks so much, Michael, uh, for having me on really happy to be there and really excited for the conversation today um i'm michael dax i'm the western program director for wildlands network based in santa fe um and for those of you who may not be um familiar with wildlands network uh we are a bi-national organization so we have offices throughout the country um, focused in the uh the pacific the west the east and mexico Um, and our focus is large landscape connectivity looking beyond boundaries, really focused on habitat connectivity, wildlife corridors, wildlife migration issues, um, things like that, that, um, you know, working close with Jesse and um, starting to get engaged in some issues in Arizona as well. So really
0: happy to be here. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. So we're here today to talk about something that that is a real pet peeve for me. Um, and that's coming from a place where, you know, I grew up in the Missouri Ozarks. And when you grow up in the Missouri Ozarks and you're interested in, in wildlife and, and running around in the woods like a feral child, um, you hunt and fish because, because that's all you know. Um, that's, that's all people did back then uh, in that place. Um, so, so I grew up with, with the rod and gun. Then I moved out west, and when I got out west, I discovered whitewater paddling, I discovered backpacking, um, I discovered all of these other things that that didn't involve, you know, hunting or angling, so I spent a great deal of my adult life, um, you know, Backpacking, paddling, uh, birding, um, chasing around reptiles and amphibians with a camera um, And then I had a great time doing it You know, I got all over all over the world really doing it um, But then settling back down uh, with a family I got to a place where I, I couldn't really afford the time or, or the money to do all of the, the things the, the, the playing outside that I wanted to do and I kind of got, got back to my roots, and that's hunting and angling. And what that allowed me to do was get out on these backpacking trips and have these adventures, and and also bring home a tangible, good and healthy meat to my family. And it just really works out well in my my place and time and life. But this this kind of brought me to a con, con, conundrum, conundrum. Forgive me. Um, that you know, I, I noticed these divisions. You know, having had a foot in both camps, um, I, I see the consumptive side of things and, and the non-consumptive side of things uh doing more headbutting than I see them working together. Now, you know, it's been said, and I'm not the first one to say it, that I, I think all of these outdoor user groups, whether they be OHV guys, hunters, anglers, birders, hikers, paddlers, I think they all agree on about 98% of the same thing. The problem comes when they start arguing over that 1%. And, you know, that's basically pulling the trigger on an animal and and bringing it home and putting it in your freezer. So that's what I want to talk about here today. Um, Because, you know, people have heard me say it, and they're going to hear me say it again, I'm sure, several times, that if we could all come together... On that 98%, you know, we would we would have an unstoppable army uh, when it comes to protecting our, our wildlife and our habitats. So with that, let, let's start with the question about how, how do you define this? And and honestly, I'm genuinely looking for your advice here because I find all of these unsatisfactory. Um, and I'd like to come up with something better or at least decide on one of them. So, you know. You, you could call it environmentalist versus conservationist. You could call it consumptive versus non-consumptive, or you could call it simply greens versus browns. Um, again, I kind of have issues with all of those descriptors because maybe it's because I find myself in the middle of most of them. But I, I've noticed uh, a recent New York Times article about Steve Ranella was titled Environmentalist with a Gun. And... I like that, That that sounded reasonable to me. But what are your, what are your fellows thoughts on that?
1: Sorry about that. Um, I was just going to say, you know, when I was growing up and uh, I might be the oldest on the call, I don't know, but when I was growing up, there was this real divide between hunters and environmentalists. You know, we would call them tree huggers or granola eaters, or we had all of these um, very demeaning terms in some way or another that hunters and environmentalists were on opposite sides of conservation issues. And took me some time to mature to a place where I believe that every single hunter should absolutely be an environmentalist. Any hunter who cares about the future of the activity, whether hunter or angler, I should say, um, relies on healthy habitat, relies on a healthy environment, relies on clean air and clean water. And so I think every single hunter should absolutely be an environmental activist. I think every single hunter should be involved in these issues. And as you mentioned, kind of in the introduction, Michael, we agree on so much of it. And oftentimes, even where we think we don't agree, there's a lot more agreement than we would originally assume. It's just a matter of misinterpretation of what one side or the other side, not to create this divisive line, but um, it's a misinterpretation of the activity from one one or the other groups of individuals coming at this from what you referred to as either consumptive or or non-consumptive plays. Yeah, I
2: I agree with, with everything that both of you guys said you know, I, I think, you know, one other um, way it's phrase might be environmentalist versus conservationist. But, you know, thinking about, um, you know, the the community here in New Mexico, I think the, the term that I kind of gravitate towards is the wildlife community. Um, and that brings in all those groups. And I think, you know, that that is, you know, really what unites us is an interest in wildlife. Um, and there's a lot more overlap there. And I think especially when you zoom out, And kind of think about, you know, where society is moving as a whole, you know, uh, you know, the past couple of years have been different with COVID, a lot more people getting outside. But previous to that, you have, you know, way more people, you know, being inside. Um, Our population is way more urban. Um, Far fewer people are having any sort of um, real relationship with the natural world. And so when you think about it in those terms, you know, we, you know, environmentalist hunters end up being grouped together as kind of, you know, the last folks standing who are still, who still place immense amount of value um, on those resources.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I, I like that term wildlife community, and I'm I'm going to, I'm going to steal that and use it if it's all right with you. Um, you know, I, I find myself uh, describing it like, well, kind of like this. Like I said, I, I feel like I've I've been on both sides of this coin, but, and, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because, you know, this podcast is, I don't mean it to be some uh, billboard for the, the positivities of hunting, but the truth is, you know, we, we're doing something that is unbelievably natural, you know, it kind of. Uh, we we evolved as hunters, um, you know, and then I I feel like uh, on a scientific level that that's kind of undebatable. So we're doing what we've always done, um, you know. And granted, we're we're you know a, a extreme tra- trajectory of other primates, but but it is something that we've done for hundreds of thousands of years. And I feel like the hunting community um, is somewhat defensive. Um, well, you know, taking an animal's life is is a big deal and not everybody's gonna be okay with that understandably. Um, so there's a lot of strong feelings there. People have have strong emotions when it comes to it but but I'll tell you, um, while hunters can be a little bit overly defensive, I think that comes out in, in a negative way when, uh, I'm going off on a tangent here. Forgive me, but you know I, I hunt javelina here. Well, I say here, but down in the in the Phoenix Valley, um off of one of the most popular trailheads in the Phoenix Valley. You don't see any other hunters there, so when I come through with a gun, uh people give me odd looks because they don't even know that that's a thing that you can do there, even though it's a wilderness area. Um, but I combat that with you know big smiles and, and positive language and I talk about all the the great things I'm gonna make and eat out of this Havelina and I get largely a very positive response. So I feel like there's an there's an issue there um, and I'm not quite sure how to tackle it but I, I think one thing that we could do to combat this is you know how how hunters present themselves to the public. Um, You know, social media hasn't done us any favors, you know, uh, pictures of deer laying on the ground with, you know, gaping bloody holes for a lack of better way to put it. Don't do us any favors. Um, you know, I have an Instagram page full of grip and grins, uh, but I I do try to pull them off in a, in a tasteful way. Um, and I, and I talk about the food, I talk about the experience, but, um, I've gotten way off track here, (laughs) but, uh. But yeah, there, there's an issue there. I think hunters are defensive. Um, and, and I think in a lot of cases, those other outdoor user groups can sometimes be um, a little bit judgmental of them as well. So any thoughts there? Yeah,
2: well, there, there are a ton of thoughts that I, I have on any any number of those threads. You know, I, I think the, uh, the comment about hunters being defensive um, is 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 a good one. You know, I, I think, you know, so much, I, I mean, I think you could apply this to just about anything in our society where there's conflict and where there are issues that we just don't deal with nuance very well as a society, as a whole. And I think, you know, you could say the same thing about hunting is it's either good or bad. And it's hard to have that conversation um, in the middle. And, you know, I will say about myself, like, I don't enjoy killing animals. You know that is the part of the experience I, I enjoy the least, but I also think there's immense value in it. From a, you know, I eat meat, and so, you know, I I should you know be part of that experience. Um, you know, as humans, as as mammals, um, you know, we are part of the life and death death cycles that are that every other animal uh, on the earth is you know deals with, um, in ways that tend to be much more gruesome than. You know what we deal with as humans and so i think it's you know part of those those natural cycles that you're entering yourself into so you know i think it's possible you know to have that conversation that is more nuanced where it doesn't have to you know be this great thing that like there there is gray area um but that's part of you know at least my attraction to it is it you know there's this whole um, experience of being a living creature on earth that we've largely divorced ourselves from. And so it's kind of entering ourselves back into those circles um, that you you can't ignore.
1: Hey, Michael, I'm going to provide just a little bit of testimonial here. I'll, I'll try to keep this kind of short, but this might provide some insight into misperceptions that exist. And, you know, in a previous lifetime, I was the president of the United Hunters of New Mexico. And when I was in that role, a state senator here in New Mexico brought together a large group of NGOs or non-governmental organizations to work on how to address trapping on public lands in New Mexico. And so this state senator convened this large group and we were having meetings in a hotel conference room. And there was a whole series of meetings set up. And again, it was a very broad, diverse coalition, if you will. I don't know if coalition is the right word, but it was a very diverse group of nonprofits that were working on this trapping issue. And uh, I was seated at a table with two organizations that I had perceived as being very anti-hunting. One of those organizations was Defenders of Wildlife. One of those organizations was Wild Earth Guardians. Both of those organizations were sitting at the table that I was seated at in, in the process of this kind of uh, collaborative approach to identifying potential solutions to trapping issues that existed on public lands. In any case, um, interestingly, and it was not Michael Dax that was at the table, although Michael Dax at the time was working for Defenders of Wildlife, but I was working with one of his colleagues on this. And I had this perception that, that this was an anti-hunting organization, but shortly after the first meeting I had at that round table, the representative from Wild Earth Guardians approached me and asked me if I could help him with his application strategy because he wanted to apply for an archery elk tag, which really caught me off guard. I mean, to some extent I was almost thinking like, what is this, some kind of a trick? Is this a joke? This Wild Earth Guardians guy is asking me if I could give him advice on how to apply for an archery elk tag. And so it was really it was really interesting and it opened my mind and it wasn't too long after that, that I first met Michael Dax uh, at the time he was with Defenders. And, and then Michael kind of surprised me in the same way by explaining to me that he was an avid hunter. And I thought, well, wow, you work for Defenders of Wildlife and you're a hunter? I thought you all were an anti-hunting organization. And the realization that I came to at that time is that hunters are far too quick to label other individuals or other organizations as being anti-hunting and one word of, of advice I would provide to all the listeners on this po- of, of this podcast who are hunters is to be very very careful and, and don't assume that somebody because they have questions or they have inquiries or maybe they don't fully understand hunting don't jump to conclusions that an individual or an organization is an anti-hunting organization because that was a mistake I made and it's one that um I've really learned from. And that lesson has really, really helped to advance my career in conservation and also the conservation accomplishments that we've achieved in New Mexico by recognizing that, um, that hunters and hunting is, it's not an all or nothing thing. There's, there's varying degrees of support. And so we just have to be very careful about that term. And I quite frankly, uh, don't like using it and I don't like hearing it either.
0: Man, Jason, Jesse, thank you so much for saying that. Um for, first off, I should commend you because it, it certainly hasn't gone unrecognized by me. Uh, your ability uh to work across the lines that we're talking about here today. Um, I notice it all the time. It's why you're here ultimately. Um, that and I just like you. But uh you do, do that well and you do it unapologetically um, and I admire that Uh, and and I will say on a personal note I'm I'm a fan of anyone that's working for wildlife and wild places Uh, you know I want this stuff here for myself selfishly I want this here for my children I want this here for for their children Um, I you know I just want a clean healthy place to live and you know the outdoors have been been the place It's, it's been everything to me my entire life. So, so it means a lot. Um, So yeah, you know, I, I, you know, we as an organization, and I should say that about uh, New Mexico Wildlife Federation as well. We, our roots are in in a sporting heritage. Um, With that. You know, we realize that wildlife doesn't just belong to hunters and anglers, and it's not just hunters and anglers that are out there working to to conserve this stuff. Um, so we we try to broaden our board of directors by bringing in more non-consumptive user groups. Again, I don't like that word, but uh, you know we have to define this somehow, I suppose. And, uh, you know, for instance, we have Friends of the Verde River and, you know, we plan on, on bringing in more as well. But with that said, you know, our, our roots are in sporting um, and, you know, access to wild places is very important to us. And I, I personally believe that people, yeah, forgive me, um, people having that tangible connection to wildlife and wild places benefits us all and and when i say tangible connection i'm talking about hunting and angling um they're not the only ones that have a connection to the outdoors there's a lot of very driven motivated people that that will never pick up a a fishing rod or, or a firearm um and and i respect those people and and i think they're doing great work but there's not unfortunately enough of them you know, we, we need all of those, that orange army that I grew up with every November back in the Ozarks. We need all those guys um, that are out there hunting deer every year. As long as it's done in a sustainable and manageable fashion, we need those people. Because, you know, they're, they're they have that tangible connection to the outdoors. They're teaching it to their children and their grandchildren. And they might not be as invested as the three of us are, but they have a connection and that's very important and it wouldn't be there w- without you know with the sporting to be completely clear um i guess new mexico wildlife federation and arizona wildlife federation um you know they're rooted in in the sporting traditions um with that said though the wildlands network uh, it's more i guess man i hate using these definitive terms but i would call it more of a green group is that correct or environmental group while you would call sporting groups conservation. I,
2: yeah. And, you, know, you know, obviously shades of great there as far as who we are and kind of where we focus our energy, but yes, we're definitely more on, you know, the traditionally, you know, environmental green group side of things.
0: Right. and I, I realize it's silly even to point that out. Um but you know, I, I want to paint a picture of why we're all here together um and how we can focus on on the things that matter and uh, you know, avoid the the details that that we might disagree on
1: well, michael, i I just want to say, and I you know, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation doesn't shy away from controversy as you've probably. Noticed, and and I'm not trying to drag you into the controversial world that we live in, <laughs> but there's some things going on with, for example, the Center for Biological Diversity that are that are very concerning to me from a hunting perspective. Things that um, I think would have a very negative effect on hunting in general. But just in in December, you know, two months ago, I spent four days with one of the founders of the Center for Biological Diversity down in the Gila while we were working on promoting the designation of the gila river 450 miles of the gila river and its tributaries as wild and scenic and the ability to sit around a campfire with somebody who you have a lot of disagreement with and i don't i don't disagree that what you said you know we generally agree on 90 percent or 98 percent or a whole bunch of things and of course that's a that's a range You know, I agree with the Wildlands Network on a lot more things than I would agree with Center for Biological Diversity. But even if I only agree with Center for Biological Diversity on 20 percent of things, let's say we disagree on 80 percent, that 20 percent that we agree on, we should absolutely be working together. I mean, if we agree that the Gila River is worthy of wild and scenic designation, they believe it, I believe it, why would I allow their other priorities that I don't agree with to interfere with our ability to to do something that will have generational impacts, to do something that will benefit New Mexicans and, and all people who love the outdoors for generations to come. And that would just be ridiculous.
2: Yeah, Jesse, I, I heard on uh, one of your podcasts, um episodes um a couple a couple days ago talking about compartmentalizing um different issues and the ability to do that and you know that's definitely something you do well and i think i think is important and you kind of hinted at this earlier but when you're able to build those large um diverse coalitions with a lot of different interests that can all say you know yes we support this thing that you know uh, greatly increases its chance of passage or moving forward or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, where there, where there are those opportunities to build coalitions across traditional lines, there's no doubt that, you know, the end benefit is the resource.
1: And one thing I'll say, Michael, is, is um, again, going back into the labeling of things, the the green groups, if you will, or the environmental advocates are so much better at this than hunters are traditionally. And I experienced this in the last New Mexico legislative session in 2021, where there was a bill to ban all trapping on public lands. And the New Mexico Wildlife Federation strongly opposed that bill. But we had other bills that we were very supportive of and that a lot of the environmental advocates also supported. And it was really quite seamless to be able to go into a a legislative committee hearing and be on the complete opposite side of the aisle with a, a whole bunch of different groups. And we competed, if you will, for the votes uh, on, and what we believed was the right thing to do with regard to the trapping bill. But then later in the same afternoon to essentially most of these were on Zoom, but um, to be shoulder to shoulder, you know, uh, for lack of you know better explanation, be shoulder to shoulder on the exact same side of a different issue and the environmental advocacy organizations did that super well. But the hunters that comprise much of the membership of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation hammered me for it. I mean, they really were uncomfortable with the fact that I would be shoulder to shoulder with someone who was supporting the ban on trapping. And it's been very, very difficult to get the average hunter to understand the concept that we're discussing here, Michael. I think leaders of organizations, people who work in this in, in this space professionally, I think have a pretty good grasp of it. What I'm hoping that this podcast will do is help to educate just the average hunter or angler who doesn't do it professionally, who doesn't work in conservation professionally, but has another job. I want them to understand that this is a necessary dynamic if we want to keep this thing around for future
0: generations yeah I I couldn't couldn't agree more with that Um, and uh, to step back just a moment one of the issues that you're talking about with uh, the Center of Biologic Diversity is is I believe anyway what you're referring to um, is a, a potential mountain lion and and black bear ban and I should say that the the waters are a little bit muddy here because they're they're working within the system um, to get reductions on on take. Uh, so yeah, Center for Biological Diversity is not outwardly anti-hunting, um, and I'm not implying that they are at all. Uh, but there are certain elements of hunting they, they I'm sure they don't care for at all. There's certain elements of hunting that I don't care for. I, I like to do it my way, you know. Um, my my personal rules. I I don't shoot anything that I don't eat. And that's how I raise my children. But I also realize that that is a personal decision and the end product doesn't make a difference to the animal I just took. So, so it's something I decide for myself and I don't try to impart that. I have opinions, but I don't impart those opinions on, on other sportsmen. Um, there are certain areas that get so extreme that we can all agree on but there's certainly a large area of nuance that we kind of need to be I think a little more non judgmental and, and accepting of, of heritage and traditions and things like that uh, despite of our own personal opinions as long as those things I apologize my dogs like walking in aisle all my wires and things um, As long as uh those those things whether we agree with them or not are not affecting the big picture on on a population or ecological scale does that make sense
2: yeah certainly um you know you talk about about well-regulated hunting and you know i think at, at points there's times where you know maybe the science supports something different than what um the game and fish is proposing as far as tag allocations and things like that. And, you know, that that's obviously a different conversation Um, from my point of view. And I, I think a lot about this, you know, what I, what I think is important from a Hunter standpoint is that you have an ethic, Um, whatever that ethic may be. um, But there's some kind of, you know, code or value that guides your, um, your actions when it comes to, taking taking an animal in the field. Um, And for me, you know, there are species that I just have zero interest in hunting, you know, both from a, um, you know, I have no plan to consume this um, animal perspective. And then from a, you know, maybe a spiritual perspective, you know, Bears are are certainly on that list as are, you know, I'd say pretty much um, any any carnivore predator. Um, But then the other one for me that, you know, is probably a little more unusual is sandhill crane. You know, that's an animal that I just, you know, I just find those things so, you know, beautiful and haunting and prehistoric um that i just can't really wrap my head around killing one i you know i have some friends that were just in texas last week i have a couple sandhill crane cream breasts in my freezer um so i'm very curious to, to eat it but at the same time i have absolutely no interest in in hunting it i don't want to see the videos he has uh, of the hunt like i i respect it you know i you know for him it doesn't you know make that list but for me it's just one of those things where it you know i um, you know, that, that one's just off limits for me. And that's my own kind of personal, personal ethic. And I guess the other thing that, you know, I've kind of catching myself on, um, is, you know, I grew up a non-hunter. I grew up in upstate New York, you know, as far as I I was concerned, you know, hunters were every, you know, stereotype, but stereotype of a redneck that you could think of. Um, and it was, you know, coming West in my twenties, you know, being in Montana, um, that, you know, really completely changed my, my mind on all of that. Um, and now, you know, I, I spend a significant amount of my my time hunting, a lot of my routines, a lot of my, my time with my closest friends revolves around hunting, whether it's, you know, in preparation or, or the actual hunt. Um, and so, you know, I find myself more and more when I'm out in the woods, you know, being out in, in the woods and, and viewing it all through the lens of a hunter you know you're looking for a sign and you're like oh there's you know there's a lot of elk sign here um you know you know l- looking for turkey roosts or whatever it might be and sometimes i i made the concerted choice to kind of you know not always see the outdoor world the natural world through that lens of a hunter and be able to kind of shift back to being a backpacker being a um you know a wildlife watcher whatever it may be and so another kind of point in addition to the you know having some established ethic whatever that might be it's going to be you know vary from person to person also be able to you know see the, you know all these same resources not purely through the eyes of a hunter even if that is you know your primary relationship but be able to you know take off that hat from time to time and you know see see it through a broader lens
0: a couple points there um One, it's funny. Um, Well, first off, I think uh, I I took my first sandhill crane this year. And I know Jesse went Mm -hmm. on a sandhill hunt. And they are delicious birds. But on the drive over here today, um, I was thinking about those birds and and how dinosaur-like they are. One of them, they even have a little velociraptor claw on one of their toes for fighting. They're just they, they are amazing animals. I agree with you there. Um, but I, I was very excited to hunt them. Um, and another point regarding bears. Um at, at this point, it's probably the favorite meat in my family. Um, we all just really enjoy bear. Um but there was a time in my life, I, I was on a on a very long hiking trip. I'd hiked from Mexico to Canada along the Continental Divide. And at one point, I, I came up to this, oh, just a big, big brushy area. And all hell started breaking loose in, in this brush pile. And I thought for sure, you know, I, I was up in Wyoming in grizzly country. I thought for sure that was it. A big grizzly was on his way out of there and he's going to tackle me. But instead, it was this little black bear, and it shot right up a dead pine, way up to the top, and it looked down at me, and man, they have so much expression. Um, You can really relate to them. And I I think that's why people are uncomfortable with hunting them in a lot of cases, too. But that little bear looked down at me, and he was huffing and puffing and carrying on, and he was just terrified. Um, and, And I remember thinking, it's like, man, I couldn't shoot that bear if I wanted to, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, there's just so much emotion there you can relate to. With that said, you know, now I, I actively hunt bears every year and and I really enjoy them, especially on the table and the challenges they provide to hunting them. And it, it certainly doesn't um, extinguish that, that all I have for them, if anything, it's, it's added to it for me, you know, cause I've learned so much about them. Um, and they're just amazing, beautiful animals. And I enjoy them in every aspect, you know, whether I see them when I have a gun in my hand or not. Um, let's see. I was going to go on and comment on the last thing you said, but it's escaping me. Let, let me, sorry. Uh, let
2: me just, you know, address that last point you just made about, um, sure. you know, like clearly you had this, you know, emotional experience with this bear. You know, it's one thing that I, a dynamic that I think I often see is, you know, when, um uh i think a lot of times hunters can have a reaction to an environmentalist point of view of you know that's just kind of emotional you know that's an emotional response um you know as a way of dismissing it and you know you know i don't think all wildlife management should be driven by emotions certainly but i also don't think there's not room for emotion when we you know think about hunting, when we think about wildlife management, um, you know, and that gets back to ethics. Um, And so, yeah, I I think we should, you know, in the world of wildlife management, you know, I think we should make a little bit more room for those sort of considerations. I mean, I think there is room. Um, Not that it should be the only driving force, but not that
0: it certainly shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. Sure. I, I would say that we have to, but we live in a society and and Jesse I'm certainly interested in hearing your thoughts on this.
1: Okay, good. I was just going to say Michael, I really appreciate, you know, you providing all of that perspective and one thing that that I'm going to just say is that hunters have a tendency to not get along with people. Hunters don't even get along with hunters, right? We fight because we don't want crossbows in the archery season. We fight because we don't want trail cameras. We fight because of mechanical broadheads or lighted knocks. We fight because of inline muzzleloaders compared to flintlock muzzleloaders. We fight for everything. But what I want to say is that there's an old um, Stephen Covey quote that says, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And I wish hunters would think about that every time that they're presented with a, an idea that they're not familiar with. Every time they're presented with a perspective that they don't immediately share. If they would seek first to understand and then to be understood, I think that would go a long way to having more effective and meaningful con- conversations surrounding the activity of hunting.
2: I, I agree, and I'd say the same on the environmental side. Um, you know, I think one, you know, you know, another thing that kind of uh, a frequent line of conversation is, um, you know, hunters saying, I love wildlife and environmentalists saying, well, if you love wildlife, why are you killing it? And I think that's a valid question, but I also think there are plenty of really valid responses to it. I don't know that I've heard that many, um, and I don't know if hunters, you know, as a group, have generally taken the time to think out that answer because um, I think there's a lot there, and that that you know, you know, in that vein of understanding of seeking understanding, I think there's a a, a lot, a lot there that um, can be explored. I think you're right, Michael,
1: and we have a mutual friend who's very active with the Rio Grande chapter of Sierra Club. Uh, she's a brilliant lady. Uh, a, biologist. I mean, she understands the natural world better than most people I've ever met. She can identify every single species of bird and plant in the landscape. And I I have immense respect for her. And she has absolutely no understanding of a person's ability to kill an animal or to consume meat for that matter. She's someone who just is, is very, very against the idea of hunting. And I'm sure you'll probably know who I'm talking about, but she and I have had multiple conversations about this in-depth lengthy conversations and i've never been able to accurately articulate a really good explanation of how i can kill something that that i claim so much to love but the the key here what i'm trying to get at is even though we have such a foundational disagreement about this particular activity we continue to be friends we continue to work together on the issues that that we share priorities on and, and that's what it's going to take if we want to protect the natural world for future generations in the face of climate change, in the face of a growing population, in the face of urban sprawl and catastrophic wildfire and everything else that's going on. It, it We have to recognize that we don't have to agree to get along. We don't have to agree to work together. We don't have to agree to be kind to one another. And and that's something that I really, really think that listeners of this show should consider uh, in their next interaction with someone who they have a
0: disagreement with. It is a funny thing because I've spent my entire life literally since I was a small child obsessed with wildlife Um, and it wasn't all trying to kill wildlife. You know, I, I, I spent, if I hadn't, followed my wife to arizona you know i I, i'd probably be a a biologist working on crayfish right now you know i i went deep into that that rabbit hole um in in birds and reptiles and amphibians and mammals I, i keep lifeless for all of this stuff so i'm extremely passionate about all wildlife and wild places um But I also very much enjoy hunting and, and, you know, bringing home wild meat and cooking it and, and utilizing it to its fullest extent. But it is funny because it's like, how, how do you explain that love for wildlife in a way that makes sense to everybody? I, I just don't, don't get, um. Maybe if we could work that out, it would be a little e- easier to communicate, but um, it is nuanced, it is complicated, and I think it comes from somewhere deep, deep, deep within us.
1: I think you're right about that, Michael, and uh, you know, oh, sorry, uh, Mr. Dax, but Mr. Dax used a word earlier that I think was was very well used, and he used the word spiritual, and, and there is a very significant degree of spirituality involved. And I don't have particular species that I, I choose not to hunt the way that uh, Michael Dax does, but I can tell you of numerous situations where I've been out in the field with a valid tag for deer, for elk, for turkeys, various species of wildlife that I really enjoy hunting and enjoy eating and have been provided with an opportunity to take an animal and for a reason I can't explain chose not to do that it it's something deep inside something that i I can't put into words. I can't articulate the reason, but it it wasn't right it didn't feel right it wasn't um I just chose not to take the animal and in some of those cases, I came home with an unfilled tag, but with absolutely no regrets you know and and i so again, there's just a lot of it that's that's primal to some degree for me that I I can't explain, and so to to a large degree I stop trying to explain it. It's just it's it's very spiritual.
2: Yeah, that's 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 awesome to hear, Jesse. You know, I think I I would kind of wonder when you know the, these one-on-one conversations happen to, between non-hunters and non-hunters, how often those stories get told, because um, I think we all have those moments where. You know, whether it's you're passing up on an opportunity or you're just kind of like struck by the wonder of it all, like I can't think of a of a situation that I wouldn't be hunting where I'd find myself in the middle of a rut fest. Um, I it actually it actually did happen in Colorado last year, but total happenstance definitely doesn't happen often. Um, and so, you know, you could definitely just stop and just be like oh my gosh, this is incredible what I'm in the middle of right now. Even while, you know, even if you are hunting, even if you are trying to figure out a way to position yourself, you know, you could also take that, you know, extra beat and just be like, this is incredible. And that, you know, and I think it's important that that gets communicated out as well. Um, But just a, you know, a thought on kind of, you know, communicating that idea of, you know, killing something that you love, I don't know that this explains it all, but um, speaking with a, a friend this past weekend, we were down hunting javelina in southern New Mexico. Um, and he is someone that we, we go on backpacking trips with over the summer. Um, you know, he said, you know, the difference for him is that you go from being an observer to part of um, part, part of the ecosystem. You know, when when you're, you know, whether it's wildlife watching, whether it's backpacking, hiking, whatever, you know, you're an observer there, you know, you're, you know, have this tend to have this viewpoint of, you know, you are entering a place that, you know, you don't otherwise belong, whereas when you're hunting, you're, you know, much more a part of everything going on, you're paying attention to the wind, you're trying to predict behavior, Um, you know, all all these other factors that, you know, as, as as an animal whether you know predator or prey, you have to pay attention to. And I think that there's something powerful about re-engaging with those sort of connections that again we've, you know, we've largely divorced ourselves from as humans.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up, Michael, the the opportunity that hunting provides to put us in in places and at times with wildlife that we very likely otherwise wouldn't have the ability or the opportunity or the motivation to experience. And you probably both have heard me tell this story, but it was August of 2020 and I was on a caribou hunt in the Yukon Charlie Rivers National Preserve in Alaska. And this was a solo hunt and I was rafting down. It was a pack rafting trip. So I was in an alpaca raft forager, inflatable pack raft. And I was rafting down the Charlie River and I came around a bend and there was a pack of wolves ripping at the abdomen of a a female or cow caribou. And when the wolves saw me, they immediately disappeared into the willows. And this cow caribou and her hide was separated, you know, from her flesh and hanging down and flapping in the, in the fast moving water of the Charlie river, this cow caribou saw me and ran to me. This, this cow ran to me for, um, protection essentially from this pack of wolves. And and it was clear to me that this caribou was not going to make it and the fear and the look in her eye is something that i'll never forget and i mean it was she was so close i I could i could almost reach out and touch her and i had a rifle with me but in alaska for a non-resident it's illegal for me to to kill a female caribou my tag was only good for a bull caribou so my initial instinct was to put this poor animal out of her misery but Legally, I couldn't do that. That would have been against the law. So instead, I just continued to raft on and knowing that when I got around the next bend in the river, the pack of wolves would come back out from the willows likely and finish off what they'd started. But I thought of that, Michael, because had it not been for the fact that I was on a a nearly month-long solo caribou hunt, I would have never in my life been able to experience that. And every single emotion known to humans probably went through me in that experience and in that interaction with that caribou. And and I'll never forget the connection that I had with that caribou. It was almost like this, this nonverbal communication that existed where this caribou is asking me for help. And I'm trying to plead with the caribou and, and explain why I'm not able to help. But it was uh, just such a powerful moment that it's difficult to, you know, communicate in words but something that there's no way I would have ever experienced had it not been for the hunting excursion that, that I was on.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, man, that, that just takes me right back to the question before it's like, you know, I, everybody on this uh, podcast right now, I feel is a, a thoughtful person that cares about animals without question. But yet, you know, we, we hunt them and, and consume them and, and enjoy doing so. Um, and it's it's just such a nuanced, um, strange thing, you know, that I, I think it might not, those answers might not be in our intellectual, societal ability to think and convey but again, I said it before, I think that it's somewhere deeply rooted um, in, in our DNA, for a lack of a better way to put it. This is what we are. This is how we evolved and we find immense value in it. But it doesn't mean that we don't care about other lo- loving things, our, our acknowledged you know, suffering. That's, that's why we all strive to make the, the quickest, uh, most efficient kill we can on an animal you know sure there's some t- twisted individuals out there but but I don't consider them hunters um and there's so few and far between uh the vast majority of of hunters I know really uh go to great lengths to make sure they they reduce suffering um and and do kill animals as quickly as cleanly as possible
2: yeah and you know from from my perspective um You know, I, I, as a, you know, relatively new hunter, you know, I've been hunting for five or six years, something like that, you know, so, so still very new, you know, very much attracted to the kind of hunt to eat movement, you know, that has, you know, you know, the last 10 years or so that I think has been kind of, um, some of the dominant ethos around, around hunting that certainly didn't exist when I was a kid and, you know, formed all, all the stereotypes that I'd mentioned before, um, and so that, you know, I, I think there's, there's kind of been a renaissance around hunting. And I think part of it is because, you know, we, we are becoming more divorced from the natural world. So I think it's, it's forcing these, these deeper considerations and, and conversations that, that didn't used to be had where, you know, it was, you know, I think a lot of it was around tradition um, and for a lot of people it still is. But I think there are these kind of new conversations where like, you know, when I was a kid, we weren't talking about factory farming and all the issues with those processes, the way that, you know, those conversations are very much being had today. You know, obviously, you know, vegetarian, you know, vegetarians were fairly new, vegans were kind of unheard of back then. And so, you know, it's like, you know, those those conversations taking place, I think forced, you know, the hunting community to kind of rethink, you know, what hunting is all about. Um, And I think it's more relevant now than ever. Um, But I think a lot of these, these bodies of thought that are that have been built up are relatively new, and so not sure how much that has you know really been communicated out of you know kind of the, the meat eaters and the the BHAs and the wildlife federations of the world.
0: Yeah, I would, you know, I guess to kind of bring this all together, you know, ultimately what can we do? To, to bring consumptive and non-consumptive sides of outdoor user groups together to, to focus on, you know, again, that 98% of what we agree on, you know, so when, when something does come up in the legislature or, um, you know, we're regarding a clean, healthy environment that we and all wildlife rely on, how can we come together and fight that stuff? How can we, stop focusing on that that one or two percent difference and and focus on everything we have together um you know one way i believe uh and i've told the story before but you know before moving you know into northern arizona i lived in the most progressive left-leaning neighborhood in the phoenix valley i mean the most left town in the most left neighborhood and in don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, be partisan here with left and right. But it, it was a very progressive neighborhood. More of my neighbors were vegans than were not. And I could bring home a javelina, hang it up in the backyard, cut it up. I could, I can make bear tacos um, and have all of the neighbors over. And they all appreciated what I did. Um, they were all supportive of what I did. But it was because of the way I talked about it. It was because of the way I treated the animal that I brought home. So I think that's one thing that hunters can certainly do. Um, you know, first they can not try to not be as guarded and defensive. Um, two, they can, you know, try to open their their eyes and minds and hearts to how other people feel. You know, it's you know, folks that don't necessarily want to kill animals they're not coming from a bad place. They're, they're, they're trying to be good people. They're trying to be compassionate and considerate. And we need to consider that in our conversations with them. But you know, what, what else would you gentlemen add as far as like building bridges? You know, I mean, talking to mountain bikers, talking to hikers, I think bird watchers, they're, they're kind of on board already because they really benefit a lot from, from Ducks Unlimited and, and work with, that they've done. But how do you communicate with these other user groups so we could all come together on these things?
1: Michael, what I'm going to say here is something that, that um, I, I feel pretty strongly about. And I feel that part of the reason historically that hunters have, have been so guarded uh, is because we didn't want other perspectives at the table. We didn't want other perspectives guiding the decisions being made by our state wildlife agencies. And what we did is we put up a shield. We had this shield that said, we fund conservation. We pay for this. We pay for this state agency. So therefore, this is our agency, and you're not welcome here. And and that's changing, and that's going to change in a really, really big way in the very near future when we see the passage of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Because what we're going to see is tens of millions of dollars in every single state agency that's being put there by dollars that are not generated by hunting and angling. And so the non-hunting perspective is coming to our state wildlife agencies, whether hunters like it or not. And hunters need to embrace that rather than to oppose it, rather than to... um, be afraid of it we need to embrace it we need to be welcoming and we need to be providing education as to you know the wildlife is a public trust resource okay so even historically as hunters have been carrying a big part of the the conservation funding um you know I guess, burden, if you will, I hate to use the word burden, but we've been paying for a significant portion of conservation funding through hunting and angling activities. That's starting to change and it has to change because we need more money than we've ever needed. We have greater challenges than we've ever had before. And the funding mechanism is going to be much more broad and therefore the voices at the table are going to be much more diverse. And that's a good thing. That's a fantastic thing. Mm -hmm. And we just need to make sure as hunters that we're communicating this activity in a way that does not result in immediate opposition. When, you know, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, this is back when we had VHS cassettes. And the way that a hunting cassette would advertise to get people to purchase it was by advertising how many kill shots they could fit into 30 minutes. They would say, we got 64 kill shots in 30 minutes of video or whatever. And they would show the same kill shot from four or five different angles. And you would see marketing for things like Broadheads and it would say, lay out the red carpet and the picture on the packaging would be this giant river of blood. I mean, it was just, it, it was really terrible messaging and we're getting away from that. And to Michael Dax's earlier point, the hunt to eat movement and, and Steve Ronella and the meat eater, we're getting much, much better at it. And we really have to, because the other voices are going to be at the table and we need to welcome them to the table and they're going to bring a lot of benefits to hunting, to angling, and to overall ecosystem health. And so uh, you're asking, what can we do to, to help um, expedite the transition that's going to occur? And I think it starts with podcasts like these. It starts with these type of conversations. But we're our, we've we moved a long way already. We've really done a much better job of changing our messaging. And, and you know, Michael Cravens, you said earlier that the number of hunters who are very, disrespectful and portray the activity in a very negative way are really a small amount and it's unfortunate that social media gives everybody a platform you know so the minority of people who are engaged in bad behavior have just as much of a you know platform as people who are doing it right but the number of people doing it right is significantly larger than the number of people who would be Providing a perspective into these activities that's, that's very negative, so we're on the right track, and I appreciate you you know, having this podcast and this conversation uh, to help advance you know, this important topic because it is very, very important. Diverse voices are coming, and we need to be very welcoming to those voices
2: yeah I, I'd add to that in a, a couple of ways. you know I think there's you know I, I, I think you could kind of break it down in three different buckets. One is the strategic. Angle And, you know, Jesse's talked about that a little bit, you know, I think the, the other is like the on the on the ground result angle of like, you know, most of the time um, hunters and anglers and, and environmentalists want the same thing, um, want the same outcome. Um, you know, the, the, when you think about the greatest threats to, to wildlife from a hunter's perspective, it's not people trying to stop hunting from an environmentalist standpoint, it's definitely not hunters. And then, you know, the third is kind of the the ethical side and and having those conversations. And Michael, you mentioned earlier hunting, um, I think you said javelina from the most popular trailhead in the Phoenix area. And I've had a a good friend of mine um, has hunted in a a really popular hiking area, a really popular canyon in northern New Mexico. Um, And you know, at first he, he said he was kind of wary about it and, you know, running to, into all these people, hauling out an elk or just, you know, with his bow. But I think he, you know, he, he's a very, you know, th- thoughtful guy. And I think he recognizes that, you know, it'll be a little bit more of a hassle for him to, you know, stop and have people ask him questions and, you know, maybe have some slightly uncomfortable conversations. But from the uh, perspective of, you know, being a spokesperson for hunting, um, you know, I think he kind of is willing to shoulder that burden a little bit and, you know, recognizing that the benefit that he can do for people's perception of hunting by, you know, taking that extra time and having those conversations, even if some of them could do have the potential to be a little uncomfortable, a little tense.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that. And thanks to guys like him, because it's really important. Um well, with that, gentlemen, I don't <laughs> I don't think there's a definitive answer to, to these all these questions I, I've kind of put out there. But I, but I think we've uh, we've done a good job of exploring them and, and we have some good ideas uh, and maybe there's not uh, definitive answers. Um, like I said, this stuff is nuanced. But uh, with that said, uh, off topic, Michael, um, uh, Jesse, turned me on to your book and i'm getting ready to do a deep dive into to grizzly bears um i've done my my wolf deep dive uh, i'm just finishing up a jaguar deep dive and i'm very interested in in grizzly bears specifically in in the southwest um so i'm gonna be buying that book and i really look forward to uh to reading it but you want to tell folks about it and tell them where they can get it
2: yeah, you bet. Um, so the, the book is called Grizzly West. Um, it started as my master's thesis at the University of Montana. I was uh, studying under uh, Dan Flores at the time, um, who is also uh, a professor of Steve Rinella's um, way back when. Um, but there was a, an attempt to reintroduce grizzly bears to the Bitterroot Wilderness of the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness in Idaho and Montana in the, uh, the mid-1990s, and this was immediately following wolf reintroduction. Um, and wolf reintroduction had taken over 20 years, was extremely controversial, ex- extremely divisive. And so two of the guys who had uh, worked on that, Hank Fisher, who at the time was working for Defenders of Wildlife, and Tom France, who was working for National Wildlife Federation, you know, kind of looked at that whole experience and were just like, yeah, let's not do that again um and ended up uh forming a partnership with um the idaho timber industry um the idaho timber industry had just watched what happened um to the the timber industries in oregon and washington following the um, spotted owl um listing and so they also realized you know they the the risk of a winner take all decision was not you know a risk that they were willing to take and they formed a partnership um and collaborated on a proposal to bring brett to reintroduce grizzly bears to the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness as a 10J population, and also created a citizen management committee that would have um, had uh, citizens from Idaho and Montana appointed by the respective governors to help guide management. And it was this really innovative proposal in the mid 1990s, just as we were starting to see these um, predator reintroductions um, that came really close to happening. Um, and so the, the book details a lot of, you know, that whole process, um, the environmental movement and conservation movements in, um, in the 90s and kind of, you know, all the, di- all the push and pull dynamics that led to that uh, proposal coming together. Um, and also talking about the, the changing West, um, about the emergence of the new West. You know, in the 1990s in Montana, you, you know, you first really started to have transplants coming in from elsewhere. You know, the environmentalists, the backpackers, all those folks with uh, kind of different perspectives than, you know, ranching and, and, and logging and things like that. So, um, you know, definitely on theme for some of uh,
0: some of our threads of conversation today. Awesome. I cannot wait to get into it and read it. Um, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I don't know if you guys can hear the toddler screaming in the background, um, but I'm going to take that as a cue to wrap this up. Uh, Michael, it's it's fantastic to meet you. I look forward to talking to you more and reading your book. And Jesse, as always, uh, man, I appreciate everything you do and your friendship. So with that, thank you gentlemen for being here. Any any last thoughts you'd like to get out there?
1: Yeah, Michael, uh, I just would like to say for, for hunters who um, meet folks that they might perceive as not being avid hunters, like uh, someone who might work for Defenders of Wildlife and then they invite you to participate in a 3D tournament with them, be careful because you just might lose. You know, I killed my first elk at 15 years old with a bow. And then Michael Dax says, Hey, why don't you come shoot a 3D tournament with me? Yeah, it, uh, but anyway, Michael Dax is going to be providing me with archery lessons going forward. So I, I appreciate your friendship, Michael Dax, and also Michael Cravens. This has been a great conversation. You both do phenomenal work, and I appreciate your time.
2: <laughs> well, Jesse, i are inviting back to uh, Archers to Santa Fe anytime. Michael, you as well. Um, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, great to meet you as well.
0: All right, guys. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, it's not necessarily always an easy one, and it's certainly not black and white. With that said, I would ask all of you hunters and anglers to try to look at, at the bigger picture, which is uh, habitat um, and, and wildlife and public lands, and try to come together with with those groups that you know you might differ on when it comes to that one or two percent. It's hard to ignore, but man if we can, can collaborate and come together on on this big picture stuff we will have you know robust wildlife populations healthy habitat and hunting and angling you know into the extended future um, and that's what matters right now you know coming together and getting this work done if we all come together we will be an unstoppable army and also i would ask those of you who are not hunters to try to look at the bigger picture here as well. You know, look at the last hundred years and and the evidence of what hunting and angling and well-regulated wildlife management based in science has done for for wildlife populations in in our country and and their habitat. It really is nothing short of amazing. So with that, uh, as always, please don't hesitate to reach out to me, tell me what you like, what you don't. And I can be found at podcast at azwildlife.org. Further, make sure you check those show notes. I'll provide links to to all of those uh, events and volunteer opportunities that, that I announced at the beginning of this podcast. So tune back in in two weeks and I'll see you then. Thanks.